We have just a little bit of time. I want to draw your attention to Luke's gospel as we approach our time of communion. It's fitting that we're in Luke 10 this morning and um, continuing our study, of course, in the weeks to come. But in Luke chapter 10, we have the unfolding, really, of what amounts to the, the mission of God, what is on God's heart, the agenda that God puts at the core of the lives of His people. You know, you can, you can imagine that you're here on earth to do a whole lot of things, and in the common grace of God, we do enjoy a lot of wonderful things. We, we are diligent in, in uh, our family life, hopefully. We, we build a legacy, and we achieve things, and we go out and do the things that God has given us to do as men on the earth, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. But, but redemption can often take a back seat or redemptive purposes and prayers for uh, the things that really matter. That can often go by the wayside under the shadow of everything else we do. And in the ministry of Jesus, you have really in so many ways a, a continual, perpetual demonstration of what is most important. Not just the fact that He came to do the work on the redemptive work on the cross, but what He told us our role is in that. What he gave us to do, having, having done the work, having expressed mercy in a message of redemption, we must align ourselves with the mission that God is, is on, the mission, the agenda that is the heart of God. You see it when he sends out the 70 and then they come back and they're all excited because the ministry was going along as they had hoped in terms of the display of the miraculous power they had. In fact, you remember in chapter 10, verse 70, verse 17, rather, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. For that particular time, that particular uh, era, when the gospel was given and it was said that Jesus is the Messiah, there was given power from heaven to attend the message and, and therefore, the message had its verification when the Spirit hadn't yet written the New Covenant Scriptures. And so here these 70, like the 12, were given this miraculous ability. They come back all excited because the power of God was on display and they were instruments in the use of it and they were excited about it. They returned with joy. Man, even the demons do what we want them to do. In fact, Jesus says in verse 18, yes, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. These are marching orders. These are, these are huge tasks, massive roles to play in the beginning work of the spread of the gospel, but easily distracting. And so... Cutting into the heart of their excitement, Jesus just pierces through all of it and gives them the priority, aligns their mind and their heart where it ought to be. Notice he says in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Ah, okay. Here's what I want you to be excited about. Here's what everything else must pale in comparison to. The redeeming miracle where God changes hearts, where their names are written in the book of life, where before time began, God set his loving affection on those whom he would redeem. I want you to set your agenda and your mission 
in alignment with God's. It isn't that you have a delegated role. That's wonderful in and of itself. But you must rejoice when a soul is redeemed. Jesus must have known then that the judgment to come, when all this time of grace is over, when the time of the Gentiles is finished, when his time for the ingathering of Israel is finished in the end, when judgment comes and Christ sets up his kingdom, and all of this ministry we have, this ministry of grace and mercy, when all of that comes to a screeching halt under the judgment of a holy God, Jesus must know that there's nothing in all of life or eternity more important in that moment than where your name is recorded. That's our marching order. That's the core of it. Sure, we do all these other things, but they must serve that. If they don't serve that, it's a waste. Because everything centers on where your name is recorded. And so as Jesus appoints another group of people to accelerate the ministry on his way to Jerusalem, He begins in chapter 10 by telling them some things about how they ought to think. He's calibrating them. He's aligning them on his mission. Notice verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now our time is limited this morning, so I'm just going to sort of generally work through a couple of things as we approach the Lord's table. Um, The Lord aligns their thinking with regard to the mission of God, the agenda of God. And He sort of frames it up in four features to this mission of God. And they're very simple and they will be obvious to you, but important to our own calibration as we think about what we celebrate here today together as a body. The first is that it is a mission by proxy. It is a mission by proxy. Jesus is going to go back to heaven. He's going to hand the the delegated task of this mission of mercy to his people. Secondly, it is a mission of mercy. That is to say that it's a mission by proxy, which is a high honor for us, but it is a mission of mercy in that it reaches anywhere, to the lowest places even. Thirdly, it is a mission with potency. That is to say God is sovereign over it. It will accomplish the surest outcome as he has promised it. We'll see that in a minute. And it is finally a mission per his urgency or per the urgency that is, that is commensurate with redemption. So it's a mission by proxy, which is the highest honor for us. It is a mission of mercy, which has the lowest reach. It goes anywhere, knows no bounds. It is a mission, Jesus says, with potency in that it provides the surest outcome. It brings the, the surest fruit, the most certain fruit, because it is a work of God's sovereignty And that it is a mission per urgency in the sense that it is the plainest need. It's the plainest need of all. You have this kind of work, and we're to pray for workers. Workers, faithful workers, aligned workers. Workers on the mission that God is on, on the agenda that He is on. Let's just look at these and 
prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. First of all, a mission by proxy. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs. So here, Jesus is, he's already in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, given the 12 instruction. These are going to be the 12. These are going to be the ones that are going to have those places that, uh, of course, Matthias replacing Judas, but 12 who will have those special places in the kingdom as we studied it in chapter 9. Here you have a similar instruction given, but to 70 more. Now, some of your translations say 72, like your ESV says 72, your NIV says 72. I chased it around just to see if there was any way I would be convinced otherwise. Again, uh, and it's, it's just because there's some variant readings in some of the original manuscripts, and, and both can be legitimate uh, as to the number that Jesus sends out. Uh, I still land on 70 because it, it is important to note that Luke is a Gentile. He's writing a gospel to the Gentiles, and everywhere through this gospel, he loves the idea, celebrates the idea that the gospel is spreading beyond Israel to the Gentile world. In fact, he omits what Matthew includes when Matthew tells his disciples, the 12, hey, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke omits that and puts in here a similar statement about the harvest and includes, he's the only one that includes the fact that there were 70 that Jesus appointed to send out. You say, why 70? Well, commentators don't know, but there are a lot of options. Again, Luke's a Gentile. It may very well be that he is recording this right here because Jesus chose 70 and that, it seems, as some scholars think, matches the number of nations in existence when Moses prophesied about the grace of God spreading in Genesis 10 and then Abraham was called in Genesis 12. So it may very well be that Jesus called 70 as some sort of symbolism. You just can't be dogmatic about it. I like the idea that it's 70 because it is Luke writing and he may very well have just picked up on that idea when the others didn't pick up on it at all. In the end, you're not gonna be able to decide uh, you can pick 72 or 70, it doesn't really matter. The only practical difference is it's either 35 pairs or 36 pairs. So how's that for some Bible interpretation? There you go. I also think it's significant that throughout the whole rest of the New Testament, here's, the, here's an interesting point. You never hear about these guys. You never hear another word about them. In all of the 13 epistles of Paul, you never hear anything about them. I mean, they, they were appointed, right? And they were sent out ahead of Jesus as his special evangelist. They, they had miraculous power. Like the 12 before them, they were going to polarize towns and villages. Hey, you don't receive me, you're not receiving Jesus. You reject me, you reject Jesus. If you welcome me into your home, I'll eat a meal, Jesus says to do that. Eat a meal with them, and they're welcoming Christ. That's pretty Pretty significant role you play when you walk into a town as one of the 70. These guys are, it seems, mission critical. Yet nothing is said about them. There's a few early second century traditions that give some, offer some names like Barnabas and others that might have been a part of the 70, but no one knows. It's not stated in the first few chapters of Acts in the beginning of the church. We don't know who they are. They're just not mentioned. Eusebius says there's no catalog. So centuries ago in the early church fathers, they even said there's no catalog of the 70 by name. You say, why is that? Well, they never held a position of leadership that was formal. They also served in the shadow of the 12. That's pretty significant. If, if, if Jesus has commissioned in a permanent role the 12 disciples, and then he turns around and gives you a, 
a commission to do your job for the sake of the gospel. You're in the shadow of the 12. They paid a dear price. They lived with him. They were the 12. They wrote the scriptures. They became the foundation upon which the church was laid. You see it there in Ephesians 2.20. If you're living in their shadow, you're not trying to make something of yourself. Maybe speaks of the humility of the 70. Always promoting Christ's authority given to the 12. Perhaps most importantly, they took seriously what Jesus said in verse 20. They rejoiced not in being singled out to work miracles, but that they themselves were a miracle of salvation. They were humble. Do you know what is equally astonishing to me about the 70? Is that Jesus is appointing and sending guilty sinners as proxies. Sinners to be his hands and feet. Sinners to be his mouthpiece with the message. How many times have you thought, there's no way I can do anything for you, Lord? Why? Because you've just lived through several days of your own self. That is bad, isn't it? And at the end of a really bad battle, and you just don't know whether, whether you can follow Christ faithfully in the simple things he calls you to do, and then suddenly it drops some redemptive purpose right in your lap and you're not ready to move forward because you, you're astonished that he gives you an opportunity to speak some truth when you haven't even lived it. The only thing we can say about this entire equation is that we don't belong in it. We don't belong in it. Jesus came to earth as a man. He was sent out by the Father. He was anointed. He was strengthened. He was empowered by the Spirit. He's the one that spiritually heals. He's the one that delivers from darkness. He's the one that takes care of guilt and overcomes evil. He saves forever. Not us. He conquered death. He gives eternal life. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's the one that intercedes for His people. Even His Spirit preserves His people. He's going to raise us up on the last day and every knee will bow to Him. We don't belong in the equation. And yet here He is appointing no names. What a high honor. What an undeserved privilege. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he said, look, I'm a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. New things have come. And God reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus and then he handed to us the ministry of reconciliation so that as ambassadors of Christ, it's as though God is pleading with men through me, be reconciled to God. I get to be the mouthpiece of Christ. The 70 got to be emissaries to go to cities and places, towns and villages on behalf of Christ. Why does God make this a mission by proxy, because he doesn't want to just save you. He wants us, this is just his delight that we not only experience salvation, but enter into the experience of being used by him for someone else's salvation. He simply wants us to share in the delight of it. We don't have any saving power but we're sent in his design. It's a mission by proxy. You know, it changes the way you live. I mean, if you grasp that every day, every single day of your life as a Christian, like these 70, you from that point on get to be an instrument 
through which God delights to move on someone's heart and convict them of sin, to hear the gospel preached and to see the truth on the pages of Scripture as God opens their eyes. You get to see that, experience being a part of it. And then when God grants them mercy, humility and conviction and repentance and faith, it is staggering. And sometimes even this side of glory, you get an opportunity to share it. Remember years ago, about 1997 or so, I was at a conference, 3,000 pastors there, church leaders, and I heard this voice behind me, it said, Jerry Rag, and I turned around and there was a guy that I hadn't seen for since I was in junior high. He was a senior in high school when I was in junior high. And, and so I said, what's going on? He said, I'm a pastor. And I said, that's not, a, that's not a shock to me, given what you were like in high school. He was a believer in the gospel, even in high school. He was faithful in the truth. And though he struggled through what anyone would have to in the growing early years of his faith, he stayed faithful to the Lord. And here he was in the ministry. And so I told him what happened to me. I told him my testimony. But what he didn't know was that in my testimony, I got the privilege to tell him that it was in the moments just leading up to God granting me faith and repentance and convicting me of my sin, two men were exploding on my mind. My own father's radical conversion and this guy. His testimony as a senior in high school had such an impression on me as a junior high kid. And I mean, the whole story just blew his mind. Here we were at a conference. We hadn't seen each other in years. And 15 years after my conversion, I get to see him because he recognized me. I don't know how that happened. I have so much frost on top. It was just, there's no way. I even had that back then. Don't, don't let anybody kid you. But he knew. He saw me. We had coffee. I got to tell him, hey, the conviction hit me so hard because I, I remember the Lord just flashed upon my mind your testimony as a high school senior, it just tears filled his eyes. It's a mission by proxy. <laughs> Secondly, it's a mission of mercy. Notice he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place. Look at this, where he himself was going to come. Is, is that clause just leaping out to you? Where Jesus himself was going to come? Do you realize that in chapter 9, verse 51, he'd said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Things are accelerating. What ought to be on Jesus' mind, and of course what filled his mind in his prayer life now was what was ahead of him, what he's now moving more quickly toward. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be captured, tortured, murdered. He's going to feel the weight of a foreign guilt that he has never felt as a sinless one. You would think that in 951, when it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, that from that point on, he just makes a beeline from the southern portions of Galilee through Samaria right to Jerusalem. Let's get this done. No, not the Lord. He's going to take a circuitous route down through the Transjordan east of the Sumerian area where he's already done ministry in Galilee, he's already done ministry in Samaria, he's pretty much done with that, but he's not going to take a straight line to Jerusalem, he's going to wander all over these areas where there are Gentiles who've never heard the gospel, and he's saying, I want you 70 to go into those places, and I want you to see what God is doing. I want you to lay the seed. This is, this is the mercy of God. He has been repudiated. 
his power has been expected, even demanded. Hey, show us signs. He is blameless. His sermons were wise and careful and tenderhearted and direct and met the need. He ministered to people, and yet the Jews dogged his heels in every synagogue, and even some of the officials sent from Jerusalem were there to incite people against him so they could hasten his murder. Of course, they had, had been pawns of Satan to hasten the plan so he wouldn't go to the cross. So evil, all hell itself was against him. His lineage was slandered. His healings, as I said, demanded. His offer of forgiveness was scorned. And at every turn, they vigorously plotted his death. Why in the world would he not at this point be saying, I came to my own, my own received me not. The Gentiles are starting to get fickle and they're running headlong. They're afraid. And, and then east of the Transjordan, you've got all these people out there and they've never come to Jerusalem. They don't worship. Lots of towns and villages and places with Gentiles who've never heard. I'm, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm not going to give the gospel to them. This is not the Lord. His mission is one of such inexplicable mercy. It's just offensive to the human fallen sense of justice. Sometimes when God saves someone that you yourself have nurtured bitterness toward, you do not want to express mercy. This was Jonah the prophet's problem. He did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew God was compassionate and might save the people he hated. This is a mission of mercy, with the lowest reach, the lowest reach. This is how God works. Job was, was in a marvel about it in Job 9, verse 10. He does great things, they're unsearchable, they're extraordinary works without number. And then Job says this, were God to pass by me, I wouldn't see him. What did he mean by that? I don't recognize his works because the way I view things is this way. I've lost my family, therefore God isn't just. My heart is starting to wonder. Man, God does unsearchable things. Where his works to pass by you, sometimes you don't see them because your heart isn't on, a, on his agenda. Fourthly, it is a mission with potency. It's a mission by proxy, the highest honor. A mission of mercy involves the lowest reach. It's a mission with potency, which means that in the sovereign work of God, there is the surest outcome. Verse 2, and he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful. Don't, don't read the next line. Yet. Just stop. The harvest is plentiful. Listen, what is significant is, not, is what Jesus does not say. What Jesus is about to compare the harvest to is the need, but what he does not say is the field is ready for you to start tilling. He doesn't say that the furrows need you to go out and plow them 
or the garden for you to cultivate and do the work. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, it seems as though through the, the mind's eye of the Lord himself, he sees the sovereign work of God already producing a harvest. He's sending the 70 out with the sure promise that there's going to be an outcome. Go get it. Go throw the seed. The Father has people there. There are those of this fold that haven't yet come. I've got to bring them in, John 10. They're not yet of this fold. I'm going to bring them, and we're going to be sheep under one shepherd. This is the, the potency of this mission of God. It's potent. He is doing the work. He's the one cultivating and growing. He's the one plowing the furrows. He's the one tilling the soil. God is the one that has gone before us and says, you come in, you plant the seed and gather the work. Jesus sees what the Father has promised out of his own mercy. We don't see the crop yet. You've got to sow the seed of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But can you really look at the culture around us and say that this promise doesn't apply to some degree? Are you really going to write off this place? We cannot do that. In fact, our light gets brighter as the culture gets darker. I might give a missionary in some countries a little bit of room for discouragement over something like this when it's a convert per 50 years. Or converts then defections and converts and defections and in places like Italy and the Middle East and these Muslim-controlled countries. I might give them a little room for discouragement, but not here. I was just talking to a couple yesterday, and they were telling me that a family member has come to Christ in, in the past few weeks. I was thinking about a staff member as well whose brother just came to Christ three weeks before he died, just a, just a bit ago. This is a mission with potency. If you will be on God's agenda. He says, you go throw the seed. There is a harvest to come. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. God knows what it is, but it is. And he sends out the 70 and says, go. There's some fruit. Man, I, I'd be skipping. This is great. I mean, some towns, he implies, are going to reject Christ. So they're not going to be able to receive them. And with authority on Jesus' behalf, he's going to be able to say, because you didn't receive us, you didn't receive Christ. And if you didn't receive Christ, you didn't receive the one who sent Christ. So therefore, we're saying to you, judgment has come to this village. But he also indicates to them that he's saving. He is saving. He's saving. I'm, I've made you proxies. You have mercy. Go with the gospel of mercy. There is a harvest. Just go gather it. Potent. They will come. And he is sovereign, notice verse 2, he's Lord of the harvest. In Mark 4, 26-29, Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night, he gets up by day, the seed sprouts up and grows, and how? He himself does not know. He doesn't know how it happens. The soil produces crops by itself. 
First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. How it happens, he does not know. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Listen, when you are throwing the seed of the gospel, just know God has given you an agenda. He's given you his mission. It is to trust him, thank him, talk of his mercy, explode with excitement over his mercy with the confidence that a harvest is being produced. You just got to go gather it. Throw the seed. He does the work. He grows it. And we're replicated. And then the contrast, lastly, it's a mission per urgency. Notice, therefore, because the laborers are few, doesn't mean that he's not going to produce a great harvest like in some nations for some seasons. What it means is that compared to the global need, compared to the darkness over the globe, compared to the Man, he wants to replicate. This is, this is God's agenda. He's doing what he wants to do, but he wants to replicate. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the plainest need. You contrast. The harvest is plentiful. There's something to gather in. So the need is great for workers to go send the seed and to pull it in. Notice, beseech him that he sends out laborers into his harvest. There's the sovereign emphasis again. Send out laborers is that, that great verb which, which means to send with a, with a specific purpose. Sometimes it's translated to throw. Um, here it just means to send with a purpose or commission with a specific. And he says, beseech the Lord. I want you to pray for this. I want you to plead with God. Beseech is just... Deamai is just a word that means to plead in prayer. Not just prayer, not just systematic prayer, but the, the burdened prayer of a pleading. Lord, replicate GIBC. Lord, train pastors at TES. Lord, take that college ministry and explode it. Take that high school ministry and explode it. Lord, take that family ministry and bring gospel ministry to those kids in our families. That's our first Potential harvest right there. Children, grandchildren. Lord, take that, that senior's ministry and work a work of the mature, discipling the less mature, and replicate yourself with new energy. Pleading for it. Lord, won't you please bring a harvest at my job? Lord, won't you please, among my classmates, my old classmates, bring a harvest. Lord, my old friends, I came to Christ and they're all pagan. Won't you please just give me some fruit there? Lord, you saved me and none of my family saved. Will you please, will you do it? I'll be your mouthpiece. I'll be the proxy. I know your mercy knows no bounds. No sin is too great. No evil, unforgivable. Christ is sufficient. I have mercy in my mouth, mercy in my heart. Won't you, won't you send people? Continually pleading for laborers. And we go with confidence. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. But we plead for more. Whatever he's prepared, he's prepared. But we're going to ask him to prepare more. Whatever influence he's designed is going to happen. And we're asking him to spread that influence. Spread it. Blow our minds with his mercy. This is God's mission. This is God's agenda. He sends out the 70 with just that agenda. And it's going to get tough. 
because he says in verse 3, you're going to be lambs among wolves. We'll get to that next time. This profound um, dependence upon God doing the work. He's got to do it. I mean, we just transferred governmental power in our own culture. You see the turmoil that's happening in communities all around us. You know, strikes fear in your heart, doesn't it? The way of life might get severely challenged. Hey, is that any surprise to us, given verse 3? You go out by proxy, but the Lord tells you, hey, pray for it, plead for it, be dependent. God loves to save. He loves mercy. He loves spreading His mercy, and He loves to use you to do it. Amazingly, that, that sinners would be used. I don't know what he has planned for the next generation in this church. I was talking with Dr. Moeller this last week, came and preached in our chapel, and we were remarking how fast big ministries come on the scene and then they die. Seminaries come on the scene and then they're gone. Past ministries of great hearts, great minds that we read in books because they're dead now. Their churches don't even remember who they were. We were talking about Spurgeon's library and how it ended up in some family's basement in Missouri because Europe didn't care. This is the way of things, isn't it? I don't know what God has planned, but I'll tell you this. We talk all the time about handing the baton off, starting to hand it off early, and God wants to replicate what's here so long as what's here is on God's agenda and His mission. What is His mission? Oh, it's this great message that we celebrate today. We are trophies of mercy. How can we withhold that from someone else? How can we write off what we're afraid of? Of course we're afraid of it. It could, it could hurt. It could get painful, difficult, of course. I mean, we are frail and dependent. We are needy. But how can we withhold, because of the difficulty, the very thing we enjoy? For all eternity, that we're replicated instruments in God's hand for a mission of mercy with a sure outcome promised. He loves to save. <laughs> and all around us is proof of it. Isn't, it. isn't that right? So when we come to the Lord's table, this has to be on our hearts. Let's confess to Him our need. Bow with me. Lord, thank you. We come with our hearts in hand before you. And you have taught us in your word these great truths. You've shown us even at the beginning of sending these 70 that you are fulfilling the promise you made so many millennia ago. The time isn't the issue. It's the certainty of it. The faithfulness of it. The patience of it the unfathomable love and kindness and mercy of it. Your compassion stuns us. It, it is gripping. We become casual about it because we forget that we're to align with your agenda. This is your agenda. Whatever we do, Lord, job or school or friends or leisure, it is to be used for this or it's a waste There to be lights in whatever arena of life 
lights. And we can't be lit and hide it, and we can't be built as a city for Christ on a hill and be hidden. You didn't hide us. You put us right in the middle of it and said, go before me, throw the seed, and you'll produce a harvest. You already see it. You already know. We should be rejoicing that our names are recorded in heaven. We should long to see those come in whose names are recorded in heaven. There's nothing more important than passing the gospel to our children. Not anything. Not achievements. Not earthly markers. Not a plot of land. But the gospel. And we're to take every walk of life and all its energies are to live for, the, for that goal and have as that backdrop and drive chain the agenda, the mission that you have laid out. Redemption in Christ Jesus. Lord, we celebrate your mercy today in these symbols. We confess we haven't been the light we need to be. We haven't been on your agenda. Sometimes we're misaligned, confused, fearful, way off track. We do a lot of good things, but sometimes they're just not your things. So help us. Please forgive us for a lesser mercy in our hearts than on yours.